we come to the, well, I guess it's the fourth in the series of the, the resurrection. Um, we are still in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we're, 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 we're working through Paul's argument for the resurrection, um, arguing through Christ the sufficiency and the essential nature of the resurrection. Um, and I reached the part where, um, where we're dealing with is 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. And dealing with the subject, the nature of the resurrection. The nature of the resurrection. Okay. Let's, let's kind of deal with some of the pretexts. I mean, you know, before we try to deal with anything else, let's deal with the pretext of why is Paul doing this. You know, Paul's ongoing debate with, the, with, with Greek Platonism. You know, don't feel strange about the word Platonism. It's just a term given for the teachings of Plato. And again, very popular within Greek culture. And the general gist of, of Platonism is basically the worlds of the spirit and the worlds of, of the natural don't mix. You know, in other words, there's a great gulf and there's no way in which they can, um, can trans, you know, transfer from one area to the other. So the whole idea of, of supernatural things happening is basically ridiculous. Miracles are ridiculous. Resurrection from the dead is ridiculous simply because you can only, you can only live in the actual world. And once you die, you die. And then the spiritual world is, is there and is, un, to some extent, unknowable. And so this is the context of, of Paul having to talk to the Corinthians. Again, a state within Greece um, and obviously very influenced by the cultural norms. And um, we can almost see that 1 Corinthians 15 is the ongoing debate. Um, if we, you don't have to turn there, but Acts 17, 29 to 32 is, again, Paul and the Areopagos arguing with, or debating, proclaiming the gospel to the Athenians there. And it goes like this. He says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So this is the context. So this is Paul having an earlier argument or an earlier debate with some of the Greeks and saying that this is the God that God has revealed and he's given assurance of salvation for those who believe in him by resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead. And obviously, you can see by the response of them, they were having no word of that. That's ridiculous. He was going against the cultural norms. So that's the reason why um, the, pre the, the pretext of this is very important to understand. You know, issues both now and then. We don't necessarily have an issue where we can say directly we're related to, we can say that Platonism affects us today, but in some ways it does. But we realize that what Paul is, is, is trying to deal with here is the cultural norms within our own society that try to dictate ethics and reason. Ethics basically meaning what you should and shouldn't do. 
Reason being the way we ought to think, you know, what is reasonable to think. And obviously, if we live in a society today, which I believe it's true, that we think that the, the miracles of the Bible are implausible or easily explained by other things, then obviously we can understand that it's important for us to understand how we have to have a firm foundation in biblical truth. Biblical truth has to dictate the way that we look at society. And society is not supposed to affect the way a believer sees the world today. We have to see it in spirit and in truth. And that is the foundation of why we need to understand 1 Corinthians 15. We need to have biblical ethics and reason. The other issue, both now and then, is the whole progress. You know, salvation in that sense has this, has this way where as a free prop process, if you understand it like that, others, I guess, might be challenged by that. But if we see the whole idea of salvation being um, a person being justified, a person being sanctified, and then a person being glorified, then we realize that at each stage there are issues. And there's issues with the maturity of the believer. So this is very much about the maturity of ourselves developing in the gospel as well. So being justified, obviously for an unbeliever, that raises huge issues. Oh, how can I be justified? I'm a terrible person, etc., etc. But God accepts us as we are, and hence justification overcomes our own inadequacies. The next thing is sanctification. You know, well, you know, we're saved. I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Oh, you know, but now I have to be obedient. Oh, well, it's not by grace now anymore. And uh, you know how the argument goes. You know, but it is by grace. But we continue to learn to be obedient. We are showing our gratitude to God by being obedient to his word. And that's what sanctification is. And that, again, has its issues for us. And we all have to get past them. But the next stage of maturity is that, well, now you know what? You're sanctified. There comes a day when you're going to be glorified. And believe it or not, we have issues with that. Sometimes we actually look at the life that we have right now and we say, wow, it's pretty good. I mean, if I had good health, if I had, um, you know, my relationships are all in check, I actually could live like this. And, you know, glorification has some huge issues. You know, I, you know speaking to some of the guys, I mean, you know, I remember <laughs> one of these conversations came up about the whole idea of not having um, sexual relationships in the new heaven and the new earth. And that becomes a real issue. Because we kind of think, well, you know, like, you know, I like the exclusivity of my marriage. That's all going to be lost. Now, I'll tell you the truth, nothing, and, and, and considerably because I quoted um, Lewis, I'm going to have to trump him and quote Lewis myself. And so, um, you know, <laughs> Lewis has an amazing, um, amazing line on this. And, it, and it's in the book called Miracles, and he's making an argument in the book called Miracles for the fact that miracles are real and true. And... Um, it's basically Lewis on sex in heaven. And this sometimes is just to kind of give you a platform to how you're going to deal with the whole idea of the maturity of being glorified. Anyway, he says this, The letter and the spirit of Scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in a new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives either of bodies that are hardly recognizable as human, bo human bodies or at all or else of a perpetual fast, that meaning that we don't have any sex whatsoever. 
So as regards to the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pressure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. Now, please, you have to understand that um, Lewis is writing before the sexual revolution when, you know, food became incorporated into sex and whatnot, but please forgive him. But look, he goes on. He says, on receiving the answer, no, that is, there is no chocolate whilst you have sex, he says, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristics of sexuality. In vain, you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolates. He doesn't know the positive thing which excludes it. We are in the position, we are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate fasting. In denying, that the, in denying the, that the sexual life, as we now understand it, makes any part of the final beatitude, it is not, of, of course, necessary to suppose the distinction of sexes will disappear. What is no longer needed for biological purposes may be expected to survive for splendor. Sexuality is the instrument both of virginity and of conjugal virtue. Neither man nor woman will be asked to throw away the weapon that they have used victoriously. It is the beaten and the fugitives who throw away their swords. The conquerors sheathe theirs and remain them and retain them. So Lewis has a great way of understanding that the nature of, of, of glorification has huge benefits to the believer. The things that the carnal life basically can't really understand right now. It's the same thing. The, the rewards of sanctification are within themselves a reward. The glorified body within its own sense is its own reward. Let's look at our main text before we pray and get started. Huge prologue, I know, but still. It will help us, I assure you. So anyway, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives to, the, to a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the, of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differs, differs from star to in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. 
The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word of truth, the word of life. We thank you for your great people whom you desire, dear Lord God, to know you better, that we might understand our inheritance, our inheritance in you. Lord Father, so speak, Father, not just through the words of my mouth, Lord God, but even, Father, by the word of your spirit into the life of all those, dear God, who wish to understand, wish to know, their Father, their inheritance in you. May we bow our hearts and hear and obey, Lord God, according to your will. Amen. Amen. So, I hope you can understand the whole reason why it's always good to address where we're coming from, where we're kind of heading. You know, it's, the two things you need to understand, obviously, is, is how do we understand the nature of the resurrection for our lives today as part of and part and process of our own salvation, the finality of our salvation, you know, and how, we, how we're supposed to contend with that within a society that obviously will say that Christians use... Um, resurrection, heaven and hell as a, as a means to kind of manipulate people. We need to understand for ourselves why these are, are, are ways that society tries to mock um, and tries to overcome their own reasons for trusting in God. But we are not like that, or we ought not to be like that. But the text is really divided into two parts. Verse 35 to 44 is the analogy of the seed. The first thing Paul does is he tries to break down the whole idea of, of how we understand the nature of, of something that we can actually relate to. And so he points to the seed. This is not a new thing that Paul does. He's, you know, we see Jesus has done that. And no doubt Jesus wasn't the first person to look at the seed and say, look at the nature of a seed. It has two lives. And one is unrecognizable to the other. I mean, you know, would he have used a caterpillar? I don't know. Maybe a caterpillar wouldn't have been suffice to say that, you know, to the extent you can look at a caterpillar and say it's like a, it's a caterpillar would, and turns into a butterfly. It's just a caterpillar with wings. Most people would probably agree with that. But the nature of the seed is actually more powerful. Because when you look at a seed and when you look at what it becomes, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous the amount of transformation that goes, that goes ahead. You know, a caterpillar changes in, in, in certain senses, but an actual seed looks nothing like how it began. And so all of a sudden, Paul is creating this huge image where he's like saying, a seed is incomparable to what it becomes. Not only is it bigger, it's almost like as if you can't even recognize it. And it is God that gives the way that the seed looks. God now says, well, you know, that seed is going to turn into an apple tree. That seed is going to turn into a grain. This, this seed is going to turn into wheat. There is that point where he's trying to say that there is a huge diversity, that though all seeds may look similar and all look the same, that's what he's saying, is that we all, to an extent, are very much the same. As much as we wear different clothes, come from different cultures, and do different things, he's like saying... To an extent, when you look at the, the glories of heaven compared to the glories of earth, there's a huge difference. A huge difference with how we will look and how we will be. And this is the first thing we need to understand about the nature of the resurrection. 
the huge difference that we're going to make in glorification. Our transformation will be immense, you know. But Paul starts this argument by basically being a lot more kinder than he was, it would appear, when he was arguing the same point in the Areopagus. And he says, you fools. I mean, I guess you've got to understand the nature of when you're dealing with somebody who is, you know, and like I said, we've got to understand, when you're in in an evangelistic mode, you're going to talk to people who don't know God in a certain way. But when you're in the church, it's very, very different. When you see a believer that's kind of, that, that you believe should know better, we have to sometimes say, you know what, you've been a bit foolish, bruv. You ought to know better. And, and Paul makes the same argument numerous points. He says, when, you're, when you ought to be, you know, when you ought to be mature, you're still having milk. And it's like, says that, you know, why am I still having to deal with your cultural norms? Why do I have to still say that Christ trumps, triumphs over culture? Why are you bringing your, 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 your base level arguments into the church? And so he starts off by saying, you know, you're foolish. And I can relate to that because sometimes you just got to call a spade a spade. <laughs> but anyway, again, we see that this is not just a, a strange enough, a Greek problem. Um, to spare you the history, um, the Sadducees in a similar sense, we're going through the same thing. And so we can say that Paul is not only familiar with this argument amongst, amongst the Greek provinces that he had to evangelize, but also within his ranks as a Pharisee. The Sadducees also argued as part of the Jewish um, establishment and part of the Sanhedrin, they had huge influence in saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And we see that when um, Paul confronts them, and again, you don't have to turn there, in Acts 23, verse 6 to 9, and it says, and when Paul perceived that part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. What does this tell us? It tells us sometimes that we not only have to fight the culture that says that remains atheistic or deist in their understanding of God, meaning that they don't believe there's anything inspired about the word of God, but sometimes we have to fight within the ranks of the church as well. Within the Jewish-owned society, you know, there was a huge history that led before when the Greeks invaded Jerusalem and all the rest of it, where Greek culture really affected the way Jewish people saw the world. Like I said, I'll spare you the history. But the bottom line is that the Sadducees came from this tradition. And so we can see the same thing within the, within the life of the church. That we have to deal with the whole skepticism of the resurrection within the life of the church. There are people that will now come and say, there is no resurrection. There is kind of like now. This is it. But if we follow this argument... <laughs> Paul already says, you know, then eat, drink, tomorrow we die. We've already, you know, I dealt with that last week. You know, and, and, and so, the, the sort of things are, 
It leads us to basically say, what are the implications of a worldview or a religion with no concept of an afterlife? You know, that the only thing they can look forward to is oblivion. I mean, again, as um, I very aptly argued last week, the whole idea is that we ought to have, live our lives very differently. Why is Paul suffering beatings and, 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 and being chastised and being called a fool himself? Why? Why do it? The afterlife is essential doctrine. The resurrection of the dead is an essential doctrine to the life of the church. It's not just the resurrection of Christ that we acknowledge. We also acknowledge our future resurrection when we look to Easter. It's not just about Christ. Christ did it not for his own benefit. Christ was already living eternally in the presence of the Trinity, in glory. Easter is significant for our lives and our future hope. Essential doctrine. Essential for us to understand this. Easter is our future, our hope, our inheritance. The death of the seed is to bring forth their final form. And again, like you said, when, when we deal with the issue of death, um, we can very clearly see that there are a number of issues with how we deal with, with, with grief. And, 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 and Christian, you know, we have to be honest, you know, most Christian funerals are very, very different um, from the optimism and, and sometimes the, uh, the, the, the kind of forced optimism that unbelievers try to put on their own ones. But we, it doesn't stop the grief. But there is a very present reality that if the whole idea of the resurrection is not real, um, it could lead us to, 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 to kind of a despair. I, I kind of referenced David in this, and again, you don't have to look there, but um, David had, again, a great understanding of who God was. He never had the revelation that we had, but, you know, again, his son dies um, as a judgment against his own acts. And um, he fasts for, for, for the son to live, and the, the baby dies. And that's hugely grievous to him. But the moment he hears the news that the baby dies, he, he literally gets back. Um, he stops fasting, he puts his, his clothes back on, um, fixes himself, and gets on. And people are like going, David, you were like grieving a minute ago. <laughs> but David has a complete understanding. He says, I will see him again. You know, we are not all David. <laughs> Pastor P, I got David in there. <laughs> um, we are not all David, but there is something about his response that ought to identify with us today. The hope that he had that he will see his son in the life to come. He stopped, he put away the grief, he couldn't stop the fact that his son would die, and then he got on with life. Life goes on. You know, some of the toughest things to say to somebody when they're grieving, but David is a great reference point here. Life goes on. In a way that a believer should understand that, I will see him 
I will see them again. So when a seed dies in order for its final form to come, what do we have to understand about this? The, the whole idea is that, as Paul says at numerous other points in his letters, that it's a promotion. They are promoted to glory. If that seed remains a seed, if we remain as we are, our potential, our full potential in salvation is lost. The potential of our salvation is what's at stake. That's why we, stick to, we, we say to a believer that has, has, has come into the faith, we say, you know what, let's, let's see what you can look like when you start getting sanctified. We encourage that maturity. And though obviously, like I said, we grieve, we encourage the fact that the believer that leaves this earth has been promoted to glory. Salvation is now complete for them in a way that it isn't complete for us quite right now. So much cause to rejoice as well as grieve. You know, so this is what he argues in verses 36 to 38. But verses 39 to 41, he, he now says about from the lesser to the greater. Paul continues to illustrate a different angle of the nature of the resurrection by defining how different creatures and constellations reflect to different degrees. You know, we see that, um, for example, the, the, the constellations, for example, are the sun is a, is a type of a light and the moon is another type of a light. And what we see is that the light of the moon really is only the reflection of the sun. You know, especially where um, end time theology is concerned, the whole idea of understanding what the relationship of the sun is, the moon is to the sun, is, is important for us to understand that we as believers are like the moon. And the sun is like the son of God. He is the true light. And we reflect him. And this is what he's saying, is that we will reflect him in a way that is, is far superior to what we have right now. He is resurrected so that we can be like him. And this is what he's saying. This is why he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying that there is a life within a beast. For example, there is life in their flesh, which is, as they walk around, as they crawl around, they are considered to be a living thing. But he said that there is a life to man as well. The difference between the flesh of, of a lion and the flesh of a, of, of a, of a man or a, or a human being is that there is a thinking going on behind there. He is alive in a way that an animal can never be alive. And it says even within nature we reflect that. We reflect our creator in a way that is greater than even the animals that walk upon the earth. And this is where he's arguing from. He's saying that we already understand these things in nature, understand it in the context of the spiritual dynamic. It's true in nature. It's also true in the spiritual things. In verse 42 to, to 44, his final part of the illustration, Paul now illustrates how life gives way to death in a way gives way to, um, to death in a way only to give way to life again. And so we don't understand. Again, we've got to understand how we are different in our understanding of how life works. For example, um, reincarnation. 
Um, Hinduism believes um, that life gives way to death, that gives way to life, that gives way to death, and then it, it's like a, a, cyclical, a cyclical nature. It goes around in circles. But Christianity believes that it is from life to death to life, and that's it. That death gives way to eternity. It's very important that we understand that we are not like, we do not believe in reincarnation. We do not believe that we are promoted to live another life on earth again. That's no promotion at all. But I guess in, in, in most Hindu um, understandings of it, if you live a better life, then obviously that's a kind of a glory. But again, as we see that when Paul argues from the area of seeds and seeds giving way to plants, we understand that the life that we live again on earth is never going to be like a seed transforming into a plant. It's just like a seed becoming another seed again. It might just be a bigger seed this time. It just might have nicer soil to be planted in. But ultimately, we remain a seed. This is not what he's arguing for. He says that the greatest change comes when the life to come. The perfection comes within the life to come. So again, life gives way to death to give way to life again. A life that continues on and is complete. The second part of his argument starting in verse, and basically winds up the, um, the last few verses, is from 45 to 49. And it's the analogy of the first and the second Adam. Now, if we're actually careful to look at these verses, um, we're going to start to see that what Paul is basically breaking down in a different dynamic into the whole idea of the doctrine of the resurrection is the whole idea of being born again. He says that the first life that you have, the life that you are given that will lead to a death, is the life of Adam. It's the seed of Adam that, you've come into your, that has come into your life. We, have, we are all born of Adam. The Adam that was at the beginning of creation, that God placed at the pinnacle of creation and said, multiply and fill the earth. We are all born from that Adam. Being born again from the second Adam is a different, completely different matter. And this is where we understand the whole idea of being born twice or born again. The second Adam is now where we claim our inheritance to be born in the manner of the spiritual. The afterlife and how we live beyond this life is now reflected in whether we are now born again. And so he now talks about two seeds existing in the life of the believer. The seed which he, he, they, they, they naturally inherit through being born and then the seed which they inherit through being a born again believer. Two Adams, two destinies. In that way, we say that we all, we all die once, but some die twice. And it's not the believer who dies twice. He argues the same um, point, um, again, if you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 4.16, um, right through to um, chapter 5 and verse 8. 
Um, again, a great point is made in Philippians 3.21. And Jesus also speaks along the same lines in John 11.25 to 26 about being the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? Paul uses it, especially in 2 Corinthians 4.16, to understand that the present conflicts in life, the soil that we may be, we be buried in, that is going to give way to our, our, new creative, uh, our new creation, can obviously inflict some hardships on us. And a believer is never to lose hope in the fact that the life that they may have, their life as a seed right now that they have, is tough. Hence, he argues from 2 Corinthians 4 that though our present sufferings are causing our outward man to perish, yet our inward man is renewed daily. What basically Paul is saying is that as we die on the inside, on the outside, sorry, as we seemingly have to deal with the hardships of life, he says that don't worry about that. If you have an understanding of what the resurrection of the, of the believer is, then you understand that the inward man is being renewed. You know, the breaking up of that seed, as you, you know, you've ever seen one of those nature programs where you see where the seed starts to crack and starts to bring forth green shoots. That's what we start to picture. Is life really, you know, is life breaking you up? Is life really difficult right now? You're being broken so that you may be renewed and your inward man might show. We are moving towards glory. This is the hope of our salvation. And this is why the hope of the believer, the life of the believer is so important. The life that we have, not just now, but the life to come. And I think this is what causes us to doubt. This is what causes us to be distant. Easter is not just our time to reflect on Christ, though that is obviously the, the reason. It's also to us to reflect on our future hope. Whatever we may have uh, given up for Lent, whatever we may have um, be suffering right now, whatever we might feel are our present um, incompat you know, things that incapacitate us, that make us feel like life is not worth living. Our hope is, is that as we understand what the life after us is, that we might actually live more triumphantly right now, that we would not divest ourselves of the the glory that God has given to us now in sanctification as well. The maturity of the believer. So my two points, again reiterating, again is understand that where society looks at us and says that Christianity creates this pie-in-the-sky theology simply so that its believers will be able to get through hard times by believing that somehow another life will make it better. We don't do that as a form of escapism. We do that and believe in that because it ought to make our lives more hopeful now. We ought to live the life that reflects the glory to come.
And as Paul says, as we perish, that inward glory starts to shine all the more. You know, Stephen had that effect of it as he was being stoned to death that they could see that this man was shining. You know, so society will have its, has its doubts about what our future inheritance will be. You know, one of the things you can also point to is the arguments that Paul raises in the same chapter is, then why, why argue? Why not just eat, drink, and, and die? The truth is, maybe we ought to encourage someone today to actually say that if you can't live by that, then what's the alternative? Sometimes we need to push people to actually understand that what they're believing in makes them more hopeless. No one can live with eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. Some do, and we see them, they fade away, and then, you know, Dom Simpson, the director, um, again, is someone that comes to mind, lived fast and loose like that. Had all the money, had all the girls, died, and then we all go, what a waste, what a tragedy. If we truly believe that Christianity's belief in an afterlife, an eternal life, is true then, then why grieve at all? Don Simpson lived the dream. He ate and he drank and he died. But we look at that and we say that's a tragedy. He ought to have experienced more. He ought to have done more. He ought to have believed in more. And sometimes we have to gently nudge people to say you can't have it both ways. If a life that is lost and is lived foolishly, we ought to say that he's lived only to die and not to live again in the way he ought to live. You know, my second point about maturity, you know, Paul, um, again in 2 Corinthians, um, as it moves into uh, chapter 5, he starts talking about life being a tent. Peter uses the same argument when he, when in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter uh, to encourage a church that has been persecuted. And he, and he says this about our lives being tents, that we, we ought to live, you know. And I can't help thinking that this is somehow reflective of Abraham being a man of faith and living in a tent. Living in a land that he will possess, but living in a tent in the same way to show that, you know what, God... This is not my home still. You know, Hebrews 11, you know, he saw a, 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 a city whose maker and builder was God. And when we're dealing with this issue of the nature of the resurrection, what would we be like? The believer ought to have the whole idea of their life on this earth being lived in a tent. The homes that we have, the cars we drive, the jobs we have, they are all things that no doubt bring glory to God as we live in them and we live with them well and use them well. Even our sexuality, as um, Lewis argued at the beginning, as I showed you. All these things are, are things that we ought to use well. But they're not our final state. The advantage of viewing life in our homes today, in our jobs today, in our own bodies today is hopefully that we might start to understand that life is like a tent for the believer. 
It has no finality for us. And the minute those things within our lives become the things that we cherish most, the things that we don't want to leave, that is when the life of the believer starts to dwindle. Not that he will ultimately or they will ultimately perish, but that we start to lose sight of the maturity that awaits for us. I believe churches and, and, and times in the past where the persecution of the church has been real, even in our current times where the persecution of the church is quite real, that the death of the believer ought to be cherished in this particular way. Not that we want to throw away our lives, but that the life and the hope that we have in Christ might actually not make us think that, you know what, there's more to live here. I say this in the context of, of being a, a father myself. You know, we might think our, our children are young, they need me. But sometimes making those tough decisions in a climate like this where it's not real for us right now, um, we ought to consider that the resurrection for us as believers is a very real thing and not to be shunned away from. We envision and we, we, we promote our maturity when we understand that death is not the end of our lives. You know, so Paul dealing with this subject is very much trying to push us in the direction of understanding that we shall be perfected in a new body and we will be like him. Um, we are going to wind up. But um, we're going to sing. Um, I'm going to pray. Tim's going to come and he's going to help us lead us in a song. A song that I found very encouraging. Um, I was introducing it by my college. Um, and it's called There Is A Day. The words are uh, extremely encouraging when we think about this. And I guess I, I want you to use this as a reflective exercise for yourselves. We've read the text. You understand that we're dealing with the nature of the resurrection. We have two points to consider. What are we going to say in face of the world when they say that our belief in the resurrection is foolish? And what are we going to say to ourselves when we feel like this world is all that we have to live for? How are we going to encourage our own maturity in the faith? And the fact that glorification is the very reality of the final stage of the believer. What awaits us is, is as I said, the analogy of the seed is beyond our comprehension. Beyond our comprehension. And as you, look up, as you listen to the words and as the, the words of, of there is a day kind of comes into there, think about what it is when we meet him in the air. Think about all the times where you thought that Easter was really about just us looking to God. Think about the significance of the resurrection for our lives, why Easter is our time. To consider our glorification. And not just at the time where we say that this is the day just after Passover that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected, but every day of our lives. Some of us might have to be lying in hospital beds where we know we are going to die. 
Some of us will have to encourage believers who are dying. And this has to be real for us. That when we speak, we don't speak as one who has no hope. That when we grieve, we don't grieve as one who has no hope. You know, Christianity is filled with some weird paradoxes where, you know, God will say to somebody, be angry and sin not. You know, grieve and be hopeful. God is not telling us to do the impossible. When we look at the analogy of the two seeds within our lives, we start to understand the whole idea that though the inward man grieves, the inward man that died, and that will die, which is Adam. There is a spiritual Adam that now tells us, but we have hope. We are the possessors of two natures. This is what Paul is saying. And one is free to grieve, but another is not free to do so because one is born and was only ever lived in you to bring you hope. So as we face the tough situations in our lives, you know, I recently had to bury an aunt as well, who was a believer, and the family grieved. But the church had hope. We will see her again. And this is the reality of the gospel. This is the reality of Easter for us. It's our time. And always has been to bring us an assurance of who we are in Christ. As we pray, let's reflect on this. Father, we thank you because your word is life. Your word is true. Father, we know that there are many times where we have not understood that the resurrection of Christ is, is, was the assurance of our salvation, the assurance, dear Lord God, not only that you would justify us and sanctify us, but that also, your Lord God, you will glorify us. Father God, we've neglected this time as a time that we might look to you and, and say, you know, praise God that he resurrected the Son. But that, Lord, we have not looked to ourselves and said, thank God, because now I am assured that I will be resurrected too. Father, the resurrection and the nature of the resurrection is ours, to in our inheritance today, Lord, that we might be transformed before you. We might live a life, dear Lord God, that is so much different from this now, that we might live, dear Lord God, as you have designed us to live. Help us today, Lord God, as we sing. Let us reflect upon our own lives our own disobedience, dear Lord God, our own lack of hope. And let, us feel, let us be filled as we leave this place, dear Lord God, with the hope that, Father, that God, we will live again, even if this life is lost. Dear Father, we thank you for your truth. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. There is a day that all creation's waiting for a day of freedom 
liberation for the earth. And on that day, the Lord will come to meet his bride. When we see him, in an instant we'll be changed. The trumpet sounds. The trumpet sounds. And the dead will then be raised. By his power, never to perish again. Once only flesh, now clothed with immortality. Death has now been swallowed up in victory. We will meet him in the air. And then we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, oh yeah. Then all hurt and pain will cease, and we'll be with him forever. In his glory we will live, oh yeah, oh yeah. So lift your eyes to the things as yet unseen. The will remain now for all eternity though trouble's hard it's only momentary though trouble's hard it's only momentary it's achieving our future glory we will meet him in the air. Let's sing that. We will meet him in the air. And then we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. Oh, yeah. Then all hurt and pain will cease and we'll be with him forever and in his glory we will live oh yeah oh yeah we will meet him in the and then we will be 
like him for we will see him as he is oh yeah then all hurt and pain will cease and we'll be with him forever and in his glory we will live oh yeah oh yeah 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 hopefully you'll get an idea of why this song um, again connects so well to this verse and um, I'm just going to encourage Tim to play that one more time just through and especially to to just sing through the chorus. If you can sing and understand what the words of this chorus mean, you've got what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. He's not talking about the significance of just Christ resurrecting and that was kind of like a one-off. This is the reality, as I've shared with you today, of all believers. And if you can sing that in your heart and understand that today, then you've got something that will transform the way you live your life. It's not to promise that all of a sudden everything will be all right, in the sense that people will promise that you'll continually prosper and never suffer. You will struggle. But when you have something and if it's sown in your heart, you can never take that away. And one thing we know about the persecuted church throughout the history of the church is that the the strength of the church has never been diminished through, through tough times, even through death, even in recent times. And if we can understand this, we're going to have a look to the life that is to come with a greater expectation than the life that we have or even going to have tomorrow, should God grace us that. So let's sing one more time. Sam, start from So Lift Your Eyes. So lift your eyes to the things as yet unseen. The will remain now for all eternity. Trouble's hard, the trouble's hard. It's only momentary It's achieving our future glory We will meet Him in the air And then we him for we will see him as he is oh yeah then all hurt and pain will cease and we'll be with him forever and in his glory we will live 